It's March 10th, 2007, and this is The Candid Frame. Of the Candid Frame. It's great to have you back. Today's guest is John Siskin. And John is a photographer I met last year during uh, a Better Photo event up in Seattle last year. And he actually uh, lives here in Los Angeles, not too far from where I am. And uh, recently I had the opportunity to visit him in his studio to talk about his career and his work. John is a fine art photographer who specializes in macro work as well as portraiture and architectural work. And uh, he has a unique side to himself in in that he actually constructs some of his own cameras, which is uh, uh, a very exciting and and very unique uh, aspect to his uh, career as a photographer. Uh, He's a very meticulous technician, and uh, especially when it comes to lighting. But what really matters to John is not, you know, technical stuff for its own sake, but really how it serves the image in the end. And uh, he's really passionate about photography and and making pictures and I think that'll come across in the interview and it's one of the reasons I chose John to be a guest on on the candid frame so enjoy our conversation with John Siskin it what didn't have auto exposure it just didn't have exposure you pointed it in the general direction of things that you were interested in and you shot and um, I was fascinated by it I, I was and then I got a Polaroid swinger Mm-hmm. which made lovely instant pictures, and that was just incredible. And then I got a real camera. I got um, a Kodak Retina 1A that had been my dad's. These are beautiful little cameras that collapse into very small yeah. space and had Schneider lenses on them. And I didn't have a clue what I was doing. <laughs> I didn't understand aperture. I didn't understand shutter speed. I didn't understand focusing. It was a miracle anything worked. <laughs> Two of them came out, and I just enjoyed what I was doing. In the, um, how did you develop in, into? Uh, did you expand more on this in like in high school, in college? Uh, did you? Did you uh, the best thing that happened to me was I worked a summer for a guy named Steve Berman, who is still, I think, um, was then a commercial photographer. I think he's in uh, New York now, but at that point he was in. Um, Los Angeles, down by Farmer's Market. And uh, I spent the whole summer down there um, working part-time and full-time for him later in the summer. I don't know how much use I was to him, but he was important to me. Uh, I had already taken a photo class. I already knew I liked photography. But Steve was a whole another level over what the games that we had been playing, you know, he was working for real, and mm-hmm. he was doing wonderful, wonderful things. And, you know, I still find myself when I don't know what what to do, I ask myself, "What would Steve do?" And it's more than thirty years later, and I'm still asking myself, "What would Steve do?" <laughs> what, what 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 kind of work was he he producing? Well, back then, people were able to have a variety of work. So he was doing fashion. He was doing model shoots. He was doing product shoots. um, He was doing advertising generally. 
Uh, and I, I liked that mix. I still like that mix. But one of the problems is that today people don't want you to have a mix. They want you to be branded by certain sorts of shots, and I've never wanted to do that. Mm. So how did you segue into doing it on your own? Um, I worked in a camera store in college, uh, and then I worked in another camera store after I got out of college. And I learned a lot more about the technology in handling it and trying to sell it every day. Um, and then I went and got a degree in camera repair um, because I was looking for, you know, something to do, some, some way to earn money because you couldn't earn any money working in a camera store. <laughs> it was still pitiful. Can. Yeah, it was just pitiful. It was just terrible. So I was looking for a way to earn money, and I took this class in camera repair, and because I needed a night job, I went and got a class in bartending and started to sling drinks. Um, I realized that I'm never going to be a camera repairman somewhere through that class because I don't have the kinds of um, steady, steady, steady hands you want to be a camera repairman. Also, the fourth time a spring takes off from the inside of a camera and you have to spend a half an hour searching for it on the floor you realize that you don't have the patience to be a camera repairman. <laughs> that was kind of where I was at. So uh, I had a. I, bartending was pretty lucrative. And so I got some money together and I um, had some friends who wanted to get involved in a studio, and this place became open. Okay. It had been a lab, and the lab was someplace that we used, and they were moving out. So. Um, we moved in, and uh, to keep the the bills paid, a group of people paid to keep the place open, and I lived here, and I ran it for not just myself, but all these other people, okay. and then I started looking for commercial accounts. What was, what was the first uh, account that you did? Uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks. I... Um, I had had a class in art there was a time in my life when I took a lot of classes, a class in drawing. And my drawing teacher was a remarkable woman who had incredible talents. She had her MFA, and she had also passed the bar in California. Hmm. That's a combination that you don't run into. And she got this job as the producer, director, one of the two, of the Chipmunk movie and she called me up and said, look, we got to copy all these backgrounds because we're shipping them to Korea to have the animation done on them, and we have to know what we did. Can you copy all these backgrounds for us? And so I started doing art copy work for them. Hmm. Had to be very careful about color and uh, concerned about size reproduction and a lot of other things. But they were very happy with what I did. I even got screen credit on the movie. It was great. <laughs> and, you know, I really developed an appreciation for high-speed sound recording. Uh, <laughs> what was one... What was more challenging, you know, getting a, um, the business end of it in terms of, you know, drumming up business and coordinating that, or was it uh, you know, really the, the, the technical thing, learning 
you know, the different lighting, uh, lighting setups you would have to do for different kinds of work and, you know, the, you mm -hmm. know, the challenges you have in terms of learning, right. learning all aspects of your craft versus, you know, trying to maintain a, a business. By far, the d business stuff is still my greatest challenge. I don't like the business stuff, so doing it is always a challenge. Whereas, I like technical things about photography. I don't feel that that's difficult. That's interesting, fascinating, a challenge. Calling strangers up on the telephone and saying, Hi, I'm John Siskin. I do photography, and I'd like to do some for your business. Or some version of that. Mm -hmm. Really unpleasant. Uh, I, I'm not a good telephone solicitor, and I still have to talk to people that I, I don't know uh, and do business with them. So that's that's still a challenge. In, in terms of your 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 work, what is the kind of work that you really enjoy doing? I mean, if you had any any um, any say in terms of the type of photography you like to do, you said you like to do a, a, a variety of different things. Mm -hmm. But is there something that you really have a passion for? Uh, my I think my favorite jobs are, are facilities brochures, are things related to going through an entire group of places in a day and shooting what people do. I did a couple of facilities brochures for General Motors. Those were just great. You know, you'd be shooting a Cadillac in a, um, a smog testing facility. And then you'd come out and you'd shoot um, a Jimmy on a track. And you had all of these different things you were doing in one day and trying to make them interesting and trying to make them compelling shots. You had different people you were shooting, people working, people st standing around doing a stand-up for their job. Mm -hmm. All of that. It's just, it requires all the skills that you have. Annual reports are similar. It requires all of your skills to do those things. And you use them in a, in a manner which calls on you to work quickly and efficiently and intelligently. Really love those kinds of jobs. Yeah. Whereas, say you're shooting 200 pillows. Boring. <laughs> profitable, but boring. <laughs> uh, and I don't like things like shooting family portraits um, because the business end of it is so difficult. Everybody becomes worried about how you get paid. And you're worried and they're worried and you're trying to find a way of getting their money that's polite and reasonable and so on. And whereas with the business, it's real straightforward. Yeah. It's real clean. And I like that. One of the interesting things about doing the kind of corporate work when you're doing facilities and, and product you know, along those lines mm -hmm. is... Something that you specialize in, in, in teaching is, is the whole thing about lighting. Yep. And that lighting really can make a shot because, you know, I've encountered situations where I walk in and I'm just like sort of dread having to shoot in the facility because the lighting was placed there with no consideration for photography. <laughs> you know, you have overhead fluorescent lights or, you know, or those mercury just, vapors. Those are the worst. Yeah. So, that's one of the biggest challenges any mm -hmm. photographer, particularly a commercial photographer, has to contend with. What's 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 your process for, you know, when you get hired to to, to shoot a facility that you may not even have seen, mm -hmm. and you get and you get there? So how how do you go about well, that? Adams talked about pre-visualization. He talked about that a lot. 
I talk about the studio of the mind. You have to take a look at what's there and then bring it in here and fix it in here first before you start dragging lights around. If you spend your time dragging lights around hoping to find what you're looking for, you're going to take a lot of time and you're going to annoy the crap out of your clients. Sorry to have said that word, but it's true. Um, you have got to think first. And so I will look at a room and the first thing that I will determine is what lighting resources are in the room and whether or not any of them are useful. So I'll look and I'll go, fluorescent tubes, those are not useful. But for instance, in this room, there's another whole set of lights. And I would find out about that set of lights. In this case, they're all tungsten. And I might turn on the tungsten lights if they looked like a useful resource to me. Or there would be windows or doors with uh, daylight possible through them. And I would look at those and try to figure out what those resources were. Then I look at the room and think about where I need to get light to tell the story of the room. Then I look at the room again and I decide where I can hide a light. Because you cannot, in general, put in lights you can't hide. In Photoshop you can do this and once in a while I've done it. But you really want to avoid putting lights in that have no place that they came from. They look really strange. So when I've determined all those things, suddenly it collapses into a, into a much easier solution. I know where the lights are going to go. I know which of those spots that I want to have lights in because I need to light something from those spots. Mm -hmm. And then I just start throwing around the equipment. Now, I know my equipment. I've been using some of it since the 1980s. I know where it is, I pack it all at the end of a job, I unpack it, I know what I'm, how I'm putting it together. I've practiced with it. So I can start setting that stuff up very quickly. I can go through the process of thinking a shoot through in a matter of just a couple of minutes. And then I can start putting lights and I can put lights out, drag a case and put lights here, 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 come back and wire them to the power pack or whatever it is. And lately, because digital requires so much less power than film did to light a room, I'm able to work with um, battery-powered and uh, low-power AC lights. So it's become much more flexible to light a room than it used mm -hmm. to be. I have a case full of Norman 200B series stuff. The case has three power packs, four heads, stands, reflectors, um, umbrellas all in one case that I can carry with me. So it's become a lot easier to do that lighting, but only because it start up here in the head. Um, you know, I, I've watched people, they start pulling out the gear before they know where it's going to go. And they'll end up pulling out three or four lights for a job where they really only need one or two. And they but because they haven't thought about it. And they're, they're trying to be busy in front of the client. Yeah. One of the interesting things um, that when I look at, you know, Architectural Digest or, you know, magazines of the like, mm -hmm. is uh, I'm more sensitive to the variations of color mm -hmm. that light produces that they're using. I think oftentimes when people think of doing, you know, interior architectural work, they think of one light, type of light, one light source, let's just fill the room with light and shoot it. Mm -hmm. When actually, 
some of the better photography is happening because they're using, like you mentioned, tungsten as mm -hmm. sort of like fill, and they may be using uh, a, a sunlight balanced light as, as as a key. But you have a sort of they're using color as as much as they're using light in order to mm -hmm. evoke the sense of the place. Color and um, brightness give you different ways of separating different parts of a shot, so that you can have. Um, the background in the shot look further away if you drop the density on it. You can have it look as though it's a whole nother room if you change the color on it. All these things are ways of how you express the room. What I do a lot of times is I match my strobes to what's there. So if I was shooting in here, I might turn on the tungsten lights and then I'd slap tungsten filters, uh, the full orange filter, over my lights and then everything would be in the same color palette um, rather than trying to uh, fix it later, which is really tough to do, but people do it in Photoshop and they make a lot of work for themselves when just putting a filter over your light will solve it. Yeah. When you're shooting with film, you, I assume you primarily depended on, on Polaroids to get a sense of how things are going. But now with yeah. digital, you have the, the benefit of the LCD. But the LCD isn't necessarily the most accurate way of evaluating not only exposure and color. How do you, how do you use it? I use tethered a lot. I use my laptop, and I tether the camera to the laptop. Because if I'm going to shoot an architectural shot, I'll set the camera in place fairly early in the project. And I'm going to get that feedback. I want that feedback as I'm doing things. So I'm going to set up the camera, uh, the uh, laptop, right next to the camera, and look at it here, bigger, four, four inches by six inches, five inches by eight inches, whatever it is, so that I don't miss things. I think the LCD is a lovely thing on the back of the camera, but I miss things in it. It's really hard to catch all the little details at something that's just a little bit bigger than the proof sheet was. Yeah. And tethering it is terrific. First, it's like having a, a cable release. I don't have to worry about releasing the camera um, and jiggling it. And if I'm allowing other lights in the room to sort of burn in, that can be a problem. And second, I don't have to... Um, uh, worry about changing the settings on the camera at the camera. I can change them in the program, in the tethered program. So I'm very, very happy with tethered shooting. Mm. There's a with Photoshop, and you're not able to take say multiple shots of the very same scene, and then shoot one for 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 the strobe, shoot a second one for mm -hmm. for tungsten or whatever else, and sort of merge them in Photoshop. Do you, do you shoot that? that way on occasion, and if so, when, or do you much prefer to sort of do it the old-fashioned way of getting it on just one single frame? I, I have looked at the HDR shooting, and I keep saying, I'm going to make time to test that. Um, I haven't done that, so I haven't done the shooting. I have a way of working that works for me that I understand. I believe that there's tremendous value in learning HDR shooting. Um, it may be very, very simple, um, but it's still going to take me two or three hours to figure it out. <laughs> um, the technology is there, but it's whether the time is there to learn. learn and the inclination. Sometimes you have to find the right place to, to use it. Um, 
I've seen people do demonstrations of HDR shooting, and I've looked at the place where they were shooting the demonstration and gone, why the hell would you bother? Um, there's not enough dynamic range to make it worth doing all of that work to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to go find the right range and shoot it and then manipulate it so that I'm doing something that is a real world, real work demonstration for me. And until then, um, I might learn how to manipulate the technique, which would be valuable, but I haven't really learned anything because I haven't made anything that worked properly from a situation that didn't work properly. I want to talk to you about, you you teach, you know, through Better Photo, you teach about lighting. Um, What's what's some of the things that you feel that are important that people learn? Because I think a lot of people, when they first do photography, they use the existing light and they, and they may use flash, but at some point they're interested in, in doing, say, product photography, whether they're shooting images for, for eBay that they're mm-hmm. going to sell or, you know, they have uh, collections of, of, of things that they want to document so they can put on a website. So it may not be that they want to end up, you know, doing a, a big contract for Ford or anything like that, but they want to be able to make the things that they photograph look as best as possible. Um, and and when I guess one of the first questions that I see commonly is like, well, what kind of gear do I get? Right. Just uh, to, to start with, and I know there's a lot of alternatives. There are strobes. Mm-hmm. There are constant light sources. You know, when when someone's considering getting into it, what what do they have to think about? Well, um, the first thing is that many of the constant light sources that people are buying today are fluorescents. Um, they're compact fluorescent tubes. I have not purchased one of these or found one that I can play with yet. I put fluorescent tubes in front of a um, spectrometer that I built. Uh, And I can see in every fluorescent tube I've ever looked at very irregular color banding. So it's going to be close to impossible to get good, consistent color all the time. Also, fluorescents require a long exposure because they cycle in the same way the 60 cycle electricity does. So you really want to look at a 30th of a second exposure if you want consistent color from a fluorescent tube. But people are selling these things like they work and I get disturbed at that. The best light source for digital photography, for photography in general that anybody's ever come up with are strobes. They are incredible. The color is right at daylight, so you don't have to worry about filtering them. They stop action just dead in its tracks because the duration is a thousandth of a second. You can run them off of batteries, many of them. You can run them off of AC power. They will give you so much light, it is mind-bending. In a thousandth of a second, my lights will get me to past F32 at full power. Now, that means that they are... Roughly speaking, six stops brighter than daylight for that thousandth of a second. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. <laughs> That's just amazing. <laughs> um, where, where are you going to get that kind of capability except with strobes? So I want to suggest that people buy strobes. They're a little more money, but there are a lot of good use strobe systems out there. 
And um, I've bought a lot of my equipment used, and it's worked well for me. You do have to learn what you're buying and get the... At least buy the instruction booklet when you're concerned about a used piece of equipment. And then when you look at the instruction booklet, why? You'll know a lot more about what looks good and what doesn't look good. And the instruction booklets are on eBay, and they're cheap. But the important thing that I want people to know about light is two and a half things. There are two and a half important things about light. First is color. And if you don't get the color right, it's going to be a pain in the butt to fix it later in Photoshop. And everybody knows what good color looks like because they've seen bad color. Great color looks different every time you see it. You can add all kinds of yellow in and suddenly get a color that's terrific for this shot, great color for this shot. It'd be awful for the next shot. The next important thing is how big the light source is. This is something that people just don't get. It's really simple, but people don't teach this. The bigger the light source is, the softer the gradation of tonality is in the shot. So if you have a really big light source, the gradation across the product or the forehead of the person you're shooting or whatever it is, is soft, it's smooth. The shadows, are the, the wrinkles that a person might have are mm-hmm. filled in because of the light. The product looks like the light comes from around the product instead of looking like you've shot light at the product. So it's a wonderful thing to have a big light source. I use big umbrellas almost all the time. I have 60-inch umbrellas. I think they're terrific. I use light panels. There's some right in my studio. Mm-hmm. Always set up. I, I think light panels are just incredible. I use them with umbrellas a lot of the time. Yeah. Just great. A lot of people like soft boxes. I'm not a great soft box fan. I think they're a pain in the butt to set up. Kind of pricey for what they are. But they do a great job. The key is you're never going to get a great-looking shot out of a 30-inch umbrella or a one-foot-by-one-and-a-half-foot softbox that you would out of a four-foot-by-six-foot light panel. You just need to get that big, big light source. And the half thing that's important is direction. When you're working with a little tiny light source, direction is critical. You can make a dramatic shot in a portrait and it'll look just great because the nose shadow goes where you want it to go. The lips are defined by the gradation of tonality, by the fall off from the light. You can do a great, great thing with that. You get to a big light source, direction isn't all that important Hmm. because the light comes from all sorts of directions. If you look out on an overcast day and you're shooting a portrait on an overcast day, you don't really care where you're set up direction-wise to the sun. It doesn't matter. The light comes from everywhere. On the other hand, if you're shooting in harsh sunlight, there's probably not a lot of directions that are going to be good. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I think that people should evaluate light from a standpoint of those two and a half things. In terms of color, you, you shoot both with film and with digital. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people think about digital and then go, well, you get in the computer, you can make color look any way you want it because Photoshop is such a powerful tool. But, you know, sometimes you do choose to choose color, color film mm-hmm. uh, to shoot as opposed to doing it digitally. When and why? There are a couple of reasons to sh- that I, I think to shoot film. 
The first one is because you want a very, very, very large image. I shoot up to 8 by 10 inch film. That's bigger than my 13.8 megapixel camera is ever going to let me get <laughs> because I can en enlarge that film tremendously. Um, Film has a unique way of seeing. Each film has a somewhat different way of seeing. So I used to use um, Kodak's SW100 Ektachrome a lot. Really loved that film because it had a wonderful way of seeing that was in line with what I was doing. Um, I knew a lot of people who shot Fuji films, and um, I liked the company, but I didn't like some of their films. I didn't like the way that the color looked. So I have a palette with color film that I don't necessarily have. Now, that's only with color transparency film. With color negative film, I don't think that the negative films that I ever developed a sense of their palette. Um, I like shooting with digital much more than I would choose to shoot with a color negative film unless I had a unique lens or lens camera body condition mm -hmm. that I then wanted to um, uh, use, some, use negative for because I was having trouble controlling exposure. Some of the cameras that I make, for instance, um, I would shoot with color negative and even if there was a digital back for them, I would probably still shoot with color negative. And that's one of the more interesting parts of your story is the fact that you make some of your own own cameras. Yeah. How, how did this start? What was the first camera you, you made? Um, what I started with was building Polaroid backs out of, for camera systems I was using. Um, you mentioned earlier we went through a lot of Polaroid in the old days. And you needed... There were like three grades of Polaroid to me. The best grade was where you had the lens, the shutter, the camera, and you just put the Polaroid material behind there and it all matched together. So you, your film was going to go exactly where your Polaroid was going to go, and this happened with 4x5. The worst was where you had a whole separate Polaroid camera, and a lot of people used 35mm cameras with old um, 195 Polaroids, and you'd grab the 195 Polaroid, you'd take your proof, and then you'd be using a different lens, different sh shutter, Everything was different, and your light would be hopefully work the same, but if there was a problem in your lens or your shutter or your camera body, you wouldn't know about it. Mm -hmm. So what I did, I used to use the Mamiya twin lens cameras a lot, loved them, and um, I built one of them into a Polaroid body so that I would be able to have first quality Polaroids. The shutter was in the lens. I would know that I would, what I was going to get out of the Polaroid body. And um, that was great. It worked really, really well. And it, it took a camera system that was a marginal utility for me and made it my main portraiture system. I used it for many, many years. Um, so that gave me the sense that I could build things. Necessity led me to building things. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing that I built was another camera that was going to shoot Polaroids for 35mm. Uh, and um, it was okay. But what I suddenly got this brilliant idea was to take a 28-millimeter Nikkor perspective control lens and put it on this camera body and put 120 film behind it. Because the perspective control lens throws a big, big, big image behind it mm -hmm. so that you can move it in relationship yeah. to the camera. And 
this was just awesome because I was shooting a 28 millimeter lens on like six by four or five film. It was so much fun. You could never tell exactly what you were going to get. So you would go out and you'd take this camera, you'd set it up and you'd take the picture. You'd come back and you'd find these negatives and some of them would be wonderful and some were not wonderful. (laughs) But it was just a blast to shoot with. I was always looking for a situation where a lens or generally a lens would define new possibilities in a camera. And so I would go out and build the camera to fit the lens. And where would you find these lenses? Um, well, the 28 PC I had, because I was using it for, not, for shooting with 35 for clients, um, I had a student that uh, was leaving town, a local student, and uh, before Better Photo. He wanted to sell me a bunch of stuff he didn't want to take with him, and he was offering it to me at a very attractive price. And uh, so I sold off some of that stuff. It was all the Russian... Um, 120 stuff. And I kept the uh, 30 millimeter fisheye lens uh, and tried it in various situations until I tried it in front of a speed graphic and discovered that the shutter and the speed graphic would work with it. And that's the camera you brought here yeah, today. That's Why don't you describe it further for the listeners who don't have the benefit okay. of being well, able to see it? Um, the lens has a front element that is. Uh, more than three inches across. So it's this huge front element. And it's, it's a short, stubby lens. It's like you took this three-element lens, th- three-inch, four-inch lens and put it on top of a 50-millimeter lens. And it fits into this wooden box of a camera that was made um, in the 1950s. These are the old press cameras that people had. And you see them in the movies frequently. The bed drops down, and they have this big old flash on the side of them. And a flash goes off and somebody takes a picture and everybody believes that they're Ouija. <laughs> um, this, the reason I like this camera body for this is these had shutters in the camera body. Most 4x5 cameras do not have shutters. Um, they, the shutter was in the lens. But since this lens doesn't have a shutter, I took the old body, I remounted the uh, lens board, I... Um, put in another set of bellows and I used the 4x5 film back and the shutter from the speed graphic and I make pictures that are amazing because this shoots onto a piece of 4 inch by 5 inch film. The image Mm -hmm. is 8 centimeters across and when you look at it what it really looks like more than anything else is the ball on a Christmas tree. The the shiny reflective things. Because it sees all around it. It sees 180 degrees of what's in front of it. And the, the camera is just a blast to use. And one of the wonderful things is every time you set it up and you try to take a picture, people go, wow, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love that. And you were telling me that the, uh, uh, the situation you loved using it in is when you're doing architectural of, of religious, yeah. religious sites. Yeah. Why, why was that? Most things that you see, everything in front of you doesn't look good. Your eye is drawn to one item or another item in in a view. And you want to edit out different parts of the view. Most uh, sanctuaries um, were designed to be beautiful all the way through them. They were designed to be... um, 
180 degrees of beauty. When you look there, you should always be inspired um, to see God or whatever you were supposed to see in that particular religious uh, religious environment. And so it's really easy to photograph 180 degrees of, of beautiful stuff in a church or a synagogue or a mosque. And I've shot in um, all of those facilities and really, really enjoyed it. I also shot in a Buddhist temple that was just great. Hmm. Really freaked out. The, the, the Buddhist monks just didn't quite know what the heck to make of me. <laughs> and you, are, are you printing these conventionally, or are you using digital output? I'm using digital output now. I've made conventional prints of them in the past, um, but I, uh, I can't see doing much more traditional color printing. The only thing that I want to do with uh, color paper now is to make a camera that shoots Type R paper, shoots reversal paper, and shoots kind of like the Polaroid uh, 20 by 24 camera. Yeah, uh-huh. I'm hoping to build something like that that'll shoot um, 16 by 20 uh, Cibachrome or Ilfachrome Classic. Now. And you have a lens in mind for that already? I have several lenses in mind for that. I have several <laughs> lenses. Um, the thing about it is that the I've read about the... Um, the Polaroid camera and they're using short focal length lenses for what that thing is because if they used long focal length lenses they'd need six feet of bellows easy so they're doing the camera is closer to the subject than you would normally assume that it would be mm-hmm. and everything is going to have bellows exposure bellows com- um, it's going to change the exposure because of the extreme bellows length but you know what the heck that's fun that's cool I look forward to seeing the images when you eventually do that. That would be very I've cool. I've shot um, images in my micro camera, the 8x10 micro camera I showed you earlier, with Cibachrome. And it's great. Uh, you, you just go into the dark room and process them, and they're right there. And you get this 8x10-inch thing of something unbelievably tiny. Mm-hmm. Because the camera will shoot to as much as 50 times life size. That's very cool. Yeah. You, you just sent me an image of, of an insect in amber. Yeah. You know, I would, I would imagine it's probably a real pain in the butt to, to photograph. <laughs> how did you, it, the image looked very cool. How did you, how did you deal with uh, think that shot? You don't want to drink too much coffee before you start working with the microscope. Because things are things really move very quickly if you've got a little shake on. Um, that's a lights microscope that I've had for some years. My wife got it for me, and God bless her. Um, I had a 4x lens on the front and a 10x lens on the back, so I've got about 40 um, 40 times life size onto the sensor and then another um, six or seven times life, life, life size uh, from the sensor to the image that I sent you on the computer. So you're looking at about 180 times, 120 times life size, wow. something like that. Um, what happens is you take a traditional microscope such as you might have used in high school. The adapter fits onto a 35 millimeter uh, film camera or onto a 35 millimeter digital camera. These adapters are inexpensive, they're easy to get. Um, And it sets up very, very simply. You can get a microscope for 
around $100 online with the lenses. Mm. And you can shoot these incredible things where you're going into something that is as as much of a change in the way you see as using a telescope is. Um, and you can do it. You know, this is one of those things that I think is tremendously useful for people who live in the Midwest during snowstorms. <laughs> <laughs> because when you can't get outside because there's four feet of snow outside your house, you can grab the microscope and start making pictures that nobody else is making. You can see things that nobody else has seen. Butterfly wings are incredible. They have little tiny foil-like pieces of material going on them. They're not scales. I've always said butterfly wings have scales. They don't have scales. They have something entirely other than mm. that. Um, it does require you to be very patient, very careful. This is another place where it's just great to be able to use the camera tethered because you can see what you're doing. It is very hard to see through the microscope. Yeah. Um, with the camera and everything else, it's very tricky. I use strobes now to light it. I've used hot lights in the past. I like strobes better because the subject that I'm shooting doesn't tend to light on fire. That's You know, it's, you keep those little hot lights, those 600-watt ones, right in on top yeah. of the subject. Suddenly everything's crinkling, <laughs> and it's a bad sign. Well, the last, the last question I always ask is um, I would like for the photographer I'm interviewing to recommend another photographer whose work they admire and they think that the listeners should, should check out and find out more about. So who would that be for you and why? Well, I, I would like to say Paula, who's in the other room and has come by, but <laughs> the photographer who inspired me most early in, in the going was Edward Weston. Um, I saw some Edward Weston prints when I was in high school, and they just changed the way I've seen from then to now. And of course, Steve Berman, I think you can still see some of Steve's stuff on the web, was tremendously important to the way that I see, but more than that, important to the way that I learned how to work. Um, there are a lot of people whose stuff I've seen over the last many years who I just was blown away by. But it's the people that I interact with that make more difference than just seeing somebody's book or somebody's stuff online um, and seeing how they do what they do. Um, another photographer that I, that's a personal friend that I, has meant a lot to me is Tom Ferguson. Um, these guys aren't, aren't famous, but they sure do help me with what I do. That's great. Well, thanks, John. Sure. It's, it's been great. Oh, it's been fun. I enjoy these sorts of things. I'd love to do more of this. Well, thanks again for joining me. If you have any comments or suggestions, email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. Till next time, this is Ivarian X. Perello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. photocastnetwork.com.